morning everyone, you're tuned to Community Radio 3CR, time is just after 7.30 and of course it's time for the 3CR Gardening Show. My name's Pam Vardy, we've got a very full studio and lots and lots happening this morning so uh, you need to really wake up, have that cup of tea or coffee in bed and uh, and stay tuned in. But first up I have to welcome back Evan Golke from Oka Landscape. <laughs> I got it right Evan, <laughs> I'll practice. <laughs> Thank Good morning. You. Good morning, Pam. Good morning, listeners. Well, we've had so much rain out our way. I don't really? know about anybody else, but uh, I emptied the gauge a couple of weeks ago and there's another, must be another 50 mil in it. Um, it's been, been amazing. It has been. It's been really, really good. Although a lot of my veggies have just stopped. <laughs> Whereas the last few winters, they've they've sort of grown really well through. So um, I'm actually now looking forward to a little bit of warmer weather. Mm. Yes, I mean, we, we're going to have a bumper spring after all this rain. It should be amazing. You would think so. Well, there's yes. money in mud, as the dairy farmers say. <laughs> <laughs> Even if you do have to wash down the cows. Yeah, yeah, no, that's right. No, so, um, no, I think it is going to be a wonderful spring. Yes. It's, it's really going to be great. It's set up beautifully. So hopefully it continues and we get another another month of nice steady rain and yep. um, and, and we'll be away and, and, and into the summer as well. Absolutely. And because we've actually had a couple of frosts, um, I'm really hoping we're going to see a good fruit set this year as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we had to, well, we bike ride on a Sunday morning early and last week was a frost. <laughs> no, the week before, sorry, the week before. Yep. It was so cold. It was freezing. It was yep. nearly balaclava weather. But out, you know, out uh, where we go in Cranburn, it um, it was just ice. The whole, all the paddocks were all, all right. just ice. So all those new houses were just sitting in this fog, which <laughs> right. was really amazing. Yeah. Um, but we haven't had that for a while. We don't get frosts where we are. We're just You're that, too we've high. We've just got that you? little bit of elevation, so yep. we sort of look down on it. There's about a three degrees difference from where we are to to, to just down in the flats. Okay. Yeah. So um, so in that way, I think it's quite good. I quite like the fact that we don't get it. To get it so cold up there, but yes. um, it's got its advantages. But as you say, it's got its disadvantages as well. That's right, killing off some of the insects. And, yep, and so yep, on. definitely. We've also got to say a very good morning to Tim Sansom, and Tim, of course, is director of horticulture at the Diggers Club. Morning, Tim. Morning, Pam. How are you? Good, thank you. You must be really looking forward to spring this year. And oh, yes, I, I think I think I'd go to what to Evan was saying that it's been a real winter. You know, we've had... It has. It's like we used to get. Yeah, it's kind of like, you know, the old-fashioned winter. Exactly. Plenty of rain, cold. And I agree, the vegetable garden has completely stopped this year. Mm. I, you know, I, look, I was looking at my kale yesterday, which has been sitting there since I planted it in February. It grew away quite happily at the start of the season, but it's just completely stopped right now. Mm. Soil's cold. I'm not, I'm not actually sowing anything in the ground right now. Yep. Yeah, but now is the time to start thinking about as the days start to lengthen about sowing into into punnets, sowing things to get them going for the plant out because I feel like it's coming. The days are starting to lengthen. I'm just driving in this morning thinking, actually, it's getting quite light. Yeah. True. You know, the, then, but there's still that moisture in the mm. air. Um and that's what I think is the harbinger of a good spring coming is, you know, it's been cold, there's plenty of moisture in the air, heaps of moisture in the ground, and it feels like, yeah, it feels like there's promise. Mm. Yeah. And that's going to lead us beautifully into um, what you've brought in yeah, this morning. Yeah, so I've brought in Because the, it's I've, the seed catalogue from Diggers. That's right. So it's a, it's, it's interesting one. We have, I mean, it's, it's a great time of the year, I think, when our seed annuals come out uh, and and it's a, that sort of planning time of the year. It's, it's Absolutely. This, this is the time of the year when... 
you know, and we're kind of getting past it now. We're moving into that phase where you're in the winter time. You're sort of hunkered down. I kind of think of it. You sort of by the fireside with a hot cup of cocoa, and you get your seed manual out, and you start planning. And you start planning. <laughs> and we're at that point now where it's you know get your seed doors, get your seed happening. Um, because it's not that long before you need to get your seedlings up and get them ready to get into the ground. Exactly. But it's the fun time when you can oh, sort of dream. You know, you know, this time of the year you can look out at your vegetable garden. It might have stopped and it looks a bit forlorn because there's hail on it or frost or whatever. But the promise of what's going to be there in December, January, February, that's that's what's coming. That's what's that's what you you're going to achieve if you if you go headlong into your planning now. And the thing I. I can't encourage people enough to do is to try and plant something different. Mm. Have a go at something different. I mean, I know a lot of people, they want their staples in each year and that's fair enough. They want their tomatoes, they want their lettuces and all the rest of it. But have a go at a different variety of something. Just an experiment each year. It it, it makes it really exciting. I I think this really, you know, I think once you, you know, there's a couple of different um, like your stages people go through in, in their garden development. And when you're starting out, you want the things that are tried and true and you know they're going to work. Then in the next couple of seasons, you start to experiment. Then you develop a palette of things that you know are yours and you know you can grow. They suit your garden. Yes. And you get it. You're guaranteed some, some produce. Yep. But every year you want to try. You should be trying something else. Absolutely. And, and playing around. You know, because gardening is a, is a learning, a lifetime of learning. And there's so much diversity out there to experiment with. And, and we'll go through a bit of some of the things that yes. are in, the, in the magazine later yep. on today. Absolutely. Fantastic. We also have to say a very good morning to Karen Sutherland from Edible Lead and Design. Good morning, Karen. Hello, Pam. How are you on this uh, slightly warmer morning, I feel? They say it's going to reach 17. I'm yet to believe it. but Well, it feels milder today than that it has for a little while. And um, a little bit differently to these other two gentlemen, I walked out yesterday morning and I got a whiff of the – I smelt the first – um, odor of almond. Ah. And I thought, hmm, I know it's out there somewhere. And one of I don't have an almond tree anymore, but I could smell it in the air. And I thought, oh, that's the beginning. And I thought, wow, that's amazing because often it only happens about mid-August, but already uh, the smell mm-hmm. of almond in the air. And and also maybe because I've more have more of an inner, inner city. Well, Pascoe Vale South didn't used to be inner city, but it is <laughs> <laughs> certainly is now. It's more than where we are. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's and much, warm, um, it's much quicker. The, the, I'm amazed that the veg- vegetables have actually still been growing, not as much as they would in spring, but I'm still quite surprised, pleasantly surprised, I should say, that uh, snow peas have been growing. I put some really late ones in and I thought, oh, this is really late, but I just put them in anyway. And I've been amazed that they keep growing. A friend's garden that I've been going around to, he's um, planted up his driveway bed, you know, the, the centre strip of your driveway. So he improved the soil over a long period of time and he put in a whole lot of different um, brassicas, so cabbages, and I'm not even sure what they all are till they keep going, but until uh, they, till they uh, mature. But he, um, he was talking to me about um, the fence, about getting some more light in that area because it's on the south side of the house, actually. Right. And I said, oh, yes, if you paint the, um, the, white, paint the fence white, you will get more reflected light in there. And I don't know whether it's been his good soil preparation or the protection of the house between the house and the fence, but coupled with the, the painting of the fence, just an ordinary old mm. uh, bit of house paint on the, on the paling fence, and it, it looks a bit odd having a white, <laughs> white paling fence, but it has really brought a lot of light into yeah. that area, okay. and the, um, the brassicas have grown really well, so yeah, different yeah. tactics for um, different yeah. situations. Yeah, it's a great idea. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. And, yeah. and it highlights that difference too between microclimates and areas. Absolutely. And, mm. and, um, I'm, in, I'm in Arthur's seat down in the Mornington Peninsula. We've been getting some 
winds that have so been exposed, howling, yeah. really a lot of exposure. Mm. And the plants, yeah, they're not cosseted away. They're actually out there, so they're really stopping it. Yeah, moment. I can imagine they wouldn't <laughs> be bothering to yeah. stick their heads up. <laughs> so you've been enjoying that. Mm. Excellent. Now, the other thing we should uh, mention before we forget is that today is National Tree Day. Yes. So hopefully hopefully some of our listeners have put their hands up to go out. I'm sure your local council will be doing some uh, tree plantings today. Um, there is nothing to stop you planting a tree in your own garden today because... Probably um, a fruit tree. <laughs> a productive <laughs> tree nice would be... Tree. Or a nice shade tree, <laughs> yes. Nut tree. <laughs> <laughs> but Karen, you've just... You just uh, in the recent uh, Organic Gardener magazine, you've written an article actually trying to encourage people to plant a few more trees. And I noticed you've put out a list there of um, different recommendations for um, whether you want your tree in a container, whether you want it in the ground, whether you want it with... Uh, as a fruit tree, as an edible? Um. Uh, yeah, I think it's it's always good to give suggestions for pots because, of course, in the in the rest of the, in, you know, the inner part of Melbourne, there's so much urbanisation and density going on in so many apartments. So there's a few interesting things. And, and always when you've only got a small space, it's good to think about the specific variety. So this is a new bay to me, but some, something called Miles Choice is very well suited to a pot. So that's one that Warner's has been growing. So okay. it's something to look out for that a nursery may have to order in for you because I think it's fairly new. Uh, kumquat nagami means you can have the ornamental look of a kumquat, but I only discovered in the last couple of years that these are one that you can eat straight off the bush and really quite tasty. I mean, if you you're the not... the whole thing too. Yeah, the whole, that's what I, that's what mm. I mean, yes. That's yeah. the one and that, it's more of an egg shape, isn't it? Yes. The fruit is yeah, kind more of, of long. Yeah. It is the one you see a lot in Europe in markets and so on, oh, in pots, okay. yes, um, yeah. you know, ready for people to take away. Yeah. That's where I first saw them and uh, yeah, they are beautiful. They're great yeah, to look at. I've a, not eaten one, but they are great to look oh, at. It's such a best. Of flavor. They're, they're, like a, they're like a lolly. They're, they really mm-hmm. are. They, and yeah. you, you don't think, oh, I'm going to eat the skin. It's going to taste horrible. You think it's going to be tart. And- Occasionally you give them to somebody and they kind of look a bit shocked. But I think some <laughs> people's palates are just very mm. um, tuned into highly sugared things. Mm. <laughs> but if you if you have a palate that's used to trying different fu- different fruits and veggies, then you'll find them absolutely delicious. Do they have many pips? Um, I'm not an expert in Nagamis as far as pips go. I think they might have some, but they're not. They're not one that you have many you don't pips even notice, from. Really. Yeah, you don't, that, I didn't notice, no. but because they're tiny, actually, because it's a small no. fruit. Yes, the, yes. The, the, the seed is quite small. Right, but it's not one that you think like some mandarins. You eat them and you think, oh, good grief, this is just all pips. It's just it's all not, pips. It's no, not that sort right. of experience. It's mostly flesh. It's hardly noticeable. Mm. So they'd be great with children. <clears throat> they can just pluck them off yep. the tree. And yes, you can glassay them too. Like you can slice them fine, and and they make. Terrific glass, eh? So they're they're Actually, a really useful ornamental edible. Oh yes, they're, they're yeah, classic yeah. Edible. And not only in pots, which they're very well suited to, but they'll mm. grow really well in open ground as oh, well. Oh sure, in the right yeah, yeah. Um, with the right rootstocks too. And what's another couple of suggestions? Oh, so for shade, I I put in a weeping wand and pride, or it's also called weeping wand and glory, and apple. And that's because I've been growing one in my garden for about 20, 25 years that I uh, bought from the Burnley Nursery many years ago when they, when they still had their um, – when I was at Burnley and they still had a um, fruit or- – like an orchard that they propagate – a propagation orchard I'm trying to get out. And this is uh, the only weeping 
productive apple tree and it's a, it's a really, really interesting tree. Absolutely gorgeous in spring and a lot of people are very keen on weeping cherries, which I'm kind of a bit over because they're done to death, but a weeping apple is a great alternative. Mm. Much stronger tree, of course. You know, all the uh, apple families are much stronger in um, vigour than the prunus is much less prone to borer and all that sort of thing. And then you have the shade in summer and some lovely fruit. It's not, not a good keeping apple, but They're grafted tasty. onto tall... Yes. Yeah, yeah. So usually kind of six foot in the old terms. Mm. So it's it's um it's quite a good tree. I've got it planted in my place uh, next to a bit of sunken sitting area with a raised bed. So it gives it extra height. So there's lots and lots of room underneath mm. it. And they're still available? Uh, as far as I know, yes. Mm. Not very often, but they are still around the place. Yeah, yeah. I don't know that I've ever seen one, but that, that, that sort of tree, because I do a lot of playgrounds, that sort of tree is great in playgrounds. Because, oh, fantastic. Because yeah. you can get in under them. Yes. So uh, I was at a school the other day where yeah. there was a, um, a prostrate uh, cootamundra waddle. Oh, yeah. And it was one yeah, of the yeah. only surviving plants in this school. <laughs> It's like that, doesn't and, it? <laughs> and, the, and the principal said, it's, or the vice principal, he said, look, it's fantastic because the kids get under it. Mm. So it, it was actually, it was about three mm. foot off the ground. Like okay. it, there was actually mm. a real tunnel underneath it. Wow. So kids would get under it. Yep. Mm. Um, and it's the same with some of the, the, the weeping trees. I think there's some down, um, uh, what's the road in South Melbourne, the McLarendon Street. There's some really nice weeping trees down Clarendon Street. And again, they're the sort of thing you can get in underneath. Um, and I've also seen a weeping uh, conifer that was grown over a structure um, and, it, and it just draped over the entire structure. So then it became this green little hidey hole uh, rather than just a steel gazebo. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, there's lots of – so that would be great because, you know, to get, get fruit, fruit in well. vegetable yeah. garden. I have to, I have to say it's more of the um, – it's not a very strongly weeping plant, so it's more – um, an umbrella. It's a bit more of an umbrella. Yes, a yeah. bit more of an umbrella effect. Yes, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm. But lovely anyway. Mm. Yeah, great. Okay. And, of course, um, the what we haven't really, really mentioned today is the fact that by planting trees, we are actually doing so much from the point of view of temperature, particularly in the cities, oh, in yeah. concrete jungles. Mm. The more we can plant trees, mm. the better. I mean, it's, it's, it's just bringing down that terrible, um, you know, hot temperatures in, that bounces off your hard surfaces yeah. in summertime. And, and if you want your, your winter sunlight to come through, you just choose a tr- deciduous tree. tree. <laughs> mm. um, but they're, they're just fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Where do people park their cars in car parks? Where there's a tree. Mm, or yeah. in the street. Of course. Uh, it, it's anywhere. just a no-brainer. Mm, yet, yeah. yet when you come, because I do a lot of sort of planning of, of community uh, hubs and that sort of thing. And so, but and I don't do the actual car parks, but the civil guys do that. But always the areas get squeezed and squeezed. The council says, well, we need another car park or we need uh, an area where a bus can park or we need this. And so it starts off this space where I can get, you know, 30 trees in there. It ends up with a space where I can get 10. Yes. You know, and you just think, oh. You know, couldn't we just drop out a few car parks? Is that really going to break the bank in the car parking of the street um, just to get some more some more trees in there? Absolutely. I was, I was out at Casey Fields yesterday and with the kids with tennis, and there's they've done a brilliant job out there, and lots of lots and lots of angophoras. And I was looking across at a car park, must have had 
50 angophoras in it, which mm. are now probably 10 years old. Mm. What a beautiful sight. And it's just <laughs> magnificent. Yes. And, uh, you know, a gravel car park, so yep. that's even better for them, I suppose. But it was beautiful. And you can imagine that in summer, mm. people parking there. It's just a really mm. nice place to be. Mm. That was good than... foresight, though, for them to actually mm. plant something. Okay, a bit of a monoculture, but something that really creates an effect so people can yeah. appreciate that tree and really... Functionally and aesthetically. Yeah. Yeah. Aesthetically, yes. And, and I think yes. you're right, especially... it, takes, it takes foresight. Mm. It takes... Um, mm. Planning. Some vision yeah. to cast your eyes ahead because often you know, a whole development will be what does it look like on the day it opens rather than what it's going to look like in 10 or 15 years. Yeah. And that's when trees can get left out of, out of a picture because they're not instant. No, mm. that's right. But mm. that extra 10 or 15 years of those trees will be something that's marvellous mm. and make that place much more than it would have been otherwise. It's convincing the engineers versus mm. the horticulture. <laughs> <laughs> you know? It's a classic, uh, <laughs> classic combat, I find. Conflict. Conflict, yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, I think having an engineer as a partner. <laughs> <laughs> right, well, I think a lot of things are engineering. Engineers versus gardeners. <laughs> he didn't yeah, win in your garden, that's no, for no. sure. Well, he came in later. That was the problem for him. <laughs> well, a lot of a lot of um, organisations, the engineers were the bosses of the horticultural departments. Yes, yeah. yeah. You can see how that's, that's how, how councils how still uh, run so much. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah. Eventually, hopefully, it will change. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, we must get to some community announcements. Um, first up, we do have uh, something special on this afternoon, which I must mention again because um, I know there are still places available if anyone's interested in going along. Now, this is um, this is um, a talk uh, being run by the Friends of Royal Botanic Gardens down in Cranbourne, and it's Elizabeth Murdoch scholarship presentation. Uh, by Sturt Gibbs and Trevor Steppings. Uh, Now, they're both botanical garden staff down at Cranbourne and uh, they're talking about uh, their trip that they they went on around uh, South Australia that went as far as Port Augusta and uh, their main um, objective was to gain information and practical insights into the cultivation and cultural requirements, including the environmental tolerance of a range of plant species potentially suited for cultivation in the Australian garden down at RBG Cranbourne Gardens. So um, that will be a most interesting talk. Now, it's taking place this afternoon, 2 o'clock till 3.30. It's being held in the Australian Garden Auditorium, which, of course, is down at Cranbourne Gardens there, 1000 Bellato Road in Cranbourne. Cost, if you're a member of the Friends Group, $15. For adults, $20. Or for students, $10. So that's this afternoon, 2 o'clock, running through until 3.30. Now, uh, also coming up next Friday, which is, uh, we're into August, uh, starting tomorrow. So Friday, August the 5th, um, there'll be the next uh, meeting of the Australian Plants Society Keylor Plains Group. Uh, they'll meet at 7.50. Their guest speaker is going to be Chris Nicholson, who's Royal Park Officer, and he'll give an illustrated talk on the Australian native garden within Royal Park. Now, Chris will be giving a brief history of the garden and pointing out various features like attractive plants, wildlife attractive, attracting components and landscape design elements. Now, the talk will take place at Airport West Uniting Church, that's on the corner of Roberts Road and Glenis Avenue in Airport West. All are welp- welcome. Supper will be provided. If you'd like further details, you can contact Anne and her number is 9336 That's 9336 
3228. Now, coming up next Saturday, 6th of August, uh, is the next uh, Pepper Tree Place um, get-together. This is where they have their uh, incredible edible Coburg food swap. Uh, It starts at 10am, running through until 2pm. At 10.30 until 12 noon, they've also got um, a workshop on keeping healthy chickens with Craig Castry. Uh, If you'd like to go to that workshop, you do need to register. And to register, you can text 0421402512. I'll repeat that, 0421402512. Just register for that. The cost is $15 uh, full price or $10 concession. And as well as that, uh, they will also be having their swap table. If you've got an excess of uh, garden produce, um, there'll be the volunteer-run nursery, there'll be the pop-up cafe, uh, there'll be Reiki, there'll be a clothes swap. So that's all uh, taking place, as I say, out at Pepper Tree Place. And Pepper Tree Place is at 512 Sydney Road in Coburg, on the corner there of Sydney Road and Bell Street in Coburg. Also next Saturday on the 6th, uh, the Friends of Burnley Gardens have got their next presentation. This is Pruning and the Art of Espalier Workshop with Chris England. Uh, Chris is very well known for his espaliers. And uh, it starts uh, 10 a.m. runs right through until 1 p.m. The venue is the nursery at Burnley Campus down at 500 Yarra Boulevard in Richmond. You do need to wear closed shoes for health and safety requirements and BYO clean secateurs. All plant materials will be supplied, including bare-rooted fruit tree to the value of $30. Now, bookings are essential. Uh, you can phone 9035 6815 and leave a message or you can email friends.burnley at gmail.com. Now the cost for members of the Friends Group is $84, for non-members $99. That includes morning tea. Okay, also uh, coming up next weekend, both on the Saturday and the Sunday, we've got Warringal Orchid Society with their next uh, show. Now, um, on the Saturday, it's going to run from 9 till 4.30. On the Sunday, 9.30 till 4. The venue is St Sava Community Centre. That's at 212 Diamond Creek Road in Greensboro. Melway's map reference there is 11C8. Entry is $4. There'll be light refreshments, potting demonstrations, orchid accessories all being available. So that's next weekend, both Saturday and Sunday. I might uh, come back to some of our other announcements which are a bit further along uh, during August um, in a little while if we get more time. But it is high time we invited our listeners to join us. If you'd like to ask a gardening question this morning, particularly about anything edible, while well, we've got uh, Tim Sansom and Karen Sutherland both in the studio, but also if you have any um, any queries about garden design or, or what to do with a shady area or a hot area, we've got Evan Golke from Oka Landscape also in the studio. So do give us a call. The number is 94190155. That's 94190155. Tim, let's get back to the seed annual. What's 
hit your eye? Is there anything new out that's really got you excited this year? There's a couple. <coughs> excuse me. <clears throat> There's a couple of really good stories I think in our um, seed annual this year. We've got um, some interesting tomatoes. It's it's funny time of the year where in July, who's thinking about tomatoes? They're ready. They're going to be ready in January. But now's the time, as we we're saying before. But we've got here. Um, we've been working at Diggers for years with a lot of American seed breeders or and seed collectors, seed yes. preservers. Uh, the Seed Saver Exchange in the US have had a close association with Diggers for, for many, many years. Um, and and obviously for, for, I guess, anyone out there that's thinking about what tomato varieties to grow for the coming season, there's, there's often you hear the discussion around heirlooms um, and what is an heirloom, what is a, and how do you have a new variety that's an heirloom. This is sort of contradiction. Um, but there are there are a, a number of varieties coming out of breeding in the US, um, which are what we're calling, for want of a better expression, heirlooms of the future. So they're they're open pollinated varieties. So they're so and, and there's a, a difference in here, which goes to what seed uh, how seed companies work and how seed is generated. So we've got, if I could just say briefly, there's. There's open pollinated varieties which are which you can save seed from. In short, you can collect your own seed; it'll come true to type the following season. There's also the F1 hybrid varieties, which often come from seed companies. They'll have a little F1 on the on the label, uh, and they're inbred varieties that you can't save seed from. Or you can, but they won't come true to type. Yep. So they lose the capacity to inherit. To make you buy more next year. Yeah. Well, it's, it's a, basically a commercial It venture. is a commercial thing. Or you just live off the cherry tomatoes that come up in your well, compost. Yeah, <laughs> the variety of things that come up. Yeah, And they will. And you'll get cherries and you'll get odd-shaped things. You'll get yeah. things that never ripen, things that over-ripen, things yeah. that are squishy, things that don't stand up. Yeah. But the whole concept of an F1 was really for consistency. Yes. And so it was a commercial thing for commercial growers so they could grow a big, long row of things and they'd have them cropping at the same time. Uniformity. Yep. And that's not necessarily what a home gardener wants. A home gardener wants diversity, home gardener wants harvest over a long time, mm. and mm. fundamentally Especially. a home gardener wants flavour. Exactly. So a lot of these open pollinated varieties, and then we go back to the heirlooms as the original open pollinated varieties, have these characteristics and traits of good flavour, long harvest periods, and are much more suited to a small-scale um, pr- uh, production system. Mm. So, long story short, we get to a tomato breeder in the US, a fellow called Tom Wagner, who you may have heard of a, a tomato variety called Green Zebra. Green Zebra was his creation. Uh, so he was busy as a, I think he was only a teenager at the time. Wow. Hybridising and crossing. Okay. And, and open pollinated varieties. And he produced Green Zebra. It's been, it's been around for and it's a fantastic tomato. Beautiful. So Beautiful. Just Amazing brief... flavour for a green oh, tomato. It's yes. weird, isn't it? And this is the really strange thing. This is what <clears> does the... weird things to your head when you're eating it. <laughs> yeah, I'm not into green tomatoes. <laughs> oh, well, I've got... you're going to have to have a go, Evan, because green tomatoes, this is, this is our big story for the year. Green tomatoes, an odd pigmentation, and black tomatoes as well. So red tomatoes are star oh, there so yesterday. So <laughs> it's all about We green. like yesterday. <laughs> oh sorry, that's right. Yeah, about yesterday. That's right. <laughs> Can we interrupt your story? Would green tomatoes sorry, but this is interesting because of urban gardening and more shade. Would green tomatoes, because I've actually tried growing green zebra in my garden, which has a lot of shade, but I, I wonder whether perhaps they need a bit less sun to ripen. Like the green apples and the yellow apples cope better with yep. getting their flavour in, in some shade than the, than the red apples. And I wonder whether the green tomatoes might be something similar. They don't need as much sun to develop think, their flavour. I actually think that 
that's probably not the case. I think oh, they okay. still need mm, the sun it. and the warmth. <laughs> Sorry, it would be a lovely story to line up. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I do think they still need to ripen. Yeah. I think one, one benefit you do get is the birds don't see them. Oh, so, yes. So yeah, you, yeah. you lose less yeah. to predators. Yeah, um, yeah. But they still have to ripen. They still have to build their sugars. Yeah. And often they get a sort of a yellow hint to them, and that's when you that's know That's when they're, you know they're ripe. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yes. And something mm. like green zebra has this really lemony pop this really tang mm. uh, that, that, that comes. I've tasted them I just haven't grown them yeah, yeah. and there's another one that we've been I doing like for them. years which is another one of Tom Wagner's which is called Green Grape which is oh, a bit smaller oh yes I've uh, heard and, I've seen that it, in your catalogue I think and yeah. it is a, mm. a, if, if, you, if you don't like green tomatoes Evan <laughs> I'm challenging you to grow green grape but who's going to feed the rosellas I can't see them <laughs> we'll grow something else for the rosellas grow, grow some sunflowers there you go they love that <laughs> they do yeah so the um, green grape is a cherry then? Yes, it's it's, uh, oh. it's it's a slightly it's probably yeah. a slightly bigger than a cherry. It's, like it's, a sweet bite or a tommy toe. Or yeah, yeah, it's it's, mm. it's a bit elongated, so it's it's yeah. a, like a grape shape. Yeah. Um, that might grow in the shade because cherry tomatoes do better in the shade than the full size. They do. Yeah. So yeah. Don't they, try a green grape this and year. In, and in mm. shorter seasons too. So in areas with colder climates mm. where you don't get mm. as, where you get you know frost to frost, it's a shorter period. And shade makes it slower to ripen as well. I'm going to try green grape. They'll scramble up things too. You know, they'll scramble up shrubs and so on too. Yeah. Especially shade. the determinant yeah. ones. Yeah. Um, but, the, but the big story <laughs> from the green stable is one mm. we're calling green, green and black. So ah. it actually, on the vine when it's not yet ripened, so yes. it's, it's set mm. fruit and it's, it's sitting there in, in its clusters, they're this translucent purple-black colour. Mm. Stunning-looking thing. Mm. And you, mm. lift up, you lift up the whole um, truss and they just look like black jewels. Yep. And as they ripen, on the sunny side, you get that, green and yellow pigmentation that shows that they're ripe and they keep a black flush across the top. So they're really high in antioxidants, the anthocyanins. Um, so they're healthy, uh, health food. This hard, I don't want to use the word superfood because it's all over Coles and Woolworths. Yes. <laughs> but let's claim it back as ours. Um, and, and so we've got this green and black, which is a, a new release that we're doing So that's like your red and black that I yeah. grew last year? Well, so red and black comes from a different... Um, provenance. They all actually come from the same uh, genetic stock, mm. which the black tomato originally came, it was called uh, blue indigo, which came from the uh, Oregon State University. And then there's a number of breeders through the US that have used this material. There's a guy called Brad Gates at Wild Boar uh, Tomatoes. Look him up on the web. He's got some fascinating stuff. He's got a little dog called Sheila, so he likes Australians. <laughs> <laughs> That's what he said to me when I met him. He had, he had this like cattle dog and he called it Sheila. So he said, oh, so I know all about Australia. <laughs> Um, and then, and so it's it, he bred he bred red and black, uh, and Tom Wagner's done green and black. So there's this whole suite of interesting things, okay, um, which are which are I think you can, and and again these might be new, but remember you can save seed from these and you can acclimatize them to your own climate. Yes, you could even start your own little breeding program because they're not <coughs> they're not uh, PBR protected, they're not right. variety protected. You can actually then experiment and, and sort of, you know, you might come up with your own. It might be pink and black. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see where it gets. Fantastic. <laughs> Excellent. We must go to uh, a very special caller we have. We have online, we have uh, John Mason. Now, John is Principal of ACS Distance Education. He's a garden author and he's a board member of the Australian Garden Council. Good morning, John. Good morning. You, you left out the most important thing, though. I was born in Victoria. Ah, oh, right. <laughs> I'm in Queensland now. Yes, though. I know. You've got a bit of warmer weather than we have at the moment. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Listen, thanks for talking to us this morning, John. Um, before, we, uh, before we get to the actual one of the main topics I wanted to talk to you about, 
Um, listeners who don't know anything about ACS distance education, can you can you tell our listeners a little bit about what what um, that provides? Oh, um, well, we have six hundred plus courses. We do certificates, diplomas. We also run the Royal Horticultural Society courses from the United Kingdom. Uh, they've got four certificates. We also have um, automated um, courses which are totally online. You log in and you just do them as and when you want and uh, the computer marks your assignments. The other ones, you're interacting with real people at Everyone wants to do things differently. And then on top of all of that, look, we started back in 79 and we were buying books for a long time and sending them out with our courses, but it's become more difficult to get reliable supply. And about three or four years ago, we decided to start publishing our own books um, as e-books to go with the courses to complement them and and people can buy the books by themselves, and that's what that's what this B book is. Yes, exactly. Well, and you've got a, a very extensive list of e-books there. I mean, I can the, you you practically cover every possible topic I can think of in the garden. But oh, um, look, we're, and we're doing more. We've got um, about a hundred at the moment, and we're currently writing another six e-books including mushrooms and goodness bre- me. brewing and uh, wine making is another one we're halfway through right yeah so they're they're churning along <laughs> <laughs> absolutely now this this latest e-book that's come out um it's titled bees beekeeping and honey um it's look it, it's a topic that really uh, needed to be covered extensively because so many more people, and particularly home gardeners, are becoming interested in in keeping bees and there isn't much information out there unless they actually join um, a, a, a beekeeping club. So yeah. I think I think you've really uh, providing a service with this e-book. Um, and it's chock-a-block full of all sorts of practical information. Um, if we can just look at a couple of different areas that you cover, firstly, people don't stop to think about where they're going to actually locate their hive if they want to put it into their garden. And there's a few things they need to think about, isn't there? Oh, yes. Yeah, of course. If, uh, and it depends on the sort of bees you've got and where you live and and what have you. But uh, yeah, if you're in a tiny little property and you've got neighbours next door, they might get a little unnerved about the idea of... Um, swarms of bees uh, coming over the fence and attacking their kids Mm. not that they necessarily do that but you know what I discovered you can actually get stingless bees and you can buy them in Australia too right Um, and uh, that's exciting you know the honey from the stingless bees is a little different in taste but um, some gourmet foodies really like that and, um, you know, it's, it's worth a go, too, if that's something that worries you. I, th- it, I think you mentioned they don't produce quite as much as some of the honeybees. No, they, they don't. But, look, you know, who wants 10 or 20 buckets of honey a, a year if you're just growing it, for, <laughs> doing it for yourself? Um, I think for the average person just trying to cater for their own needs at home, mm. uh, the stingless bees can be fine. If you want to... Um, produce larger quantities of honey. Well, the the 
traditional honey bee is the bee that's going to produce a lot more. Yes. Um, but, yeah, look, you, you say you've got to have it in the right location, you've got to have the pollen for it. Um, if there's a lot more pollen around, well, the bees have surplus and they're going to make more honey. Mm. And uh, you've got to have some water near them too. Um, it doesn't have to be 50 metres away, but uh, you can't... <laughs> function too well with bees out in the middle of the desert. And as you mentioned, if, if you're going to put down water, you really need to put pebbles or something into a dish, don't you, so that yeah. the bees don't drown? Yeah, that's right. Mm. Yeah. Um, we, were, we were talking about locating the hive. I've got Karen Sutherland from Edible Eden Design here in the studio. And Karen, you've got your beehives up on your roof. My garage roof, yes. And yes. Um, that way it keeps them out of the way because I have a lot of visitors to the garden with an open garden and other other tours and things and classes. And so that just means they're perfectly safe for everybody because there are, there are a lot of concerns around bees and I often find they're unfounded when I, I can't quite believe that that many people in the community these days get anaphylaxis from bees <laughs> but they claim to and I think it's more that people don't have that experience anymore where when I was a little kid you know we had clover in our lawn and I stepped on a bee and so I found out pretty early on what bee stings are like <laughs> so it was no surprise to me when I got bees and got stung but it's it's small amounts of bee stings are supposed to be quite good for you if you don't have anaphylaxis and in fact I see um that you've mentioned in the in the uh, book, which is quite interesting, some of the products of beehives, including bee venom and how to harvest bee venom. I was quite interested in reading all about that. Apparently it's a treatment for rheumatoid arthritis because yep. so, it stimulates the immune system. Oh, yeah, there's a lot more to bees than yeah, what you think. And people look at honey and they think, oh, honey, that's just a lot of sugar. But, you know, there's protein in honey. There, you've got vitamins in honey. There, there's a lot more to it. It's a... It's a lot more easily digestible too, I have to say. I mean, I, I'm a person that has funny reactions to sugar, but I can have honey every day. I have honey in my tea every day, all through the day, and it doesn't have the same effect. And if I had um, the same quantity of just straight-out cane sugar, processed cane sugar, yeah. I would feel completely different. So well, yeah, I'm not it's, saying it's good for diabetics. But, yeah, <laughs> I'm not look, diabetic, but it yeah. certainly is a different product to eat. It feels different in your body. It's low GI, so it's not going to dump into the body quickly and give you a sugar rush the same way as mm. uh, cane sugar does. Mm. No, but, it's quite different. But, you know, back to where to keep them, the other thing to keep in mind is that bees function well at a mid-range sort of temperature, and if it gets really, really hot or really, really cold, they're not going to function, so... If you do put them in a place that can get quite hot, you uh, you might need to provide some shade for them, particularly in uh, the middle of summer. And yeah, a lot it, of the rooftop yeah. um, bee-keeping people like myself have had to put on peach roofs to get more ventilation. Yeah. That's become a bit of a thing. And also, yes, you do have to be really aware. And when it's a hot day, you have to um, I've rigged up all sorts of shade cloth things on the roof. And um, the only issue is that, different windy times you hear a bit of a crash and that's the bricks and the shade cloth all sort of (laughs) you think oops sorry bees bees. (laughs) so the bees are all right but yeah the shade cloth comes comes flying off in the wind so you know i haven't quite perfected the uh, shade cloth system yet the engineer needs to get more involved that's the problem that's right yeah but no they do you're completely right they do need shade and some people i know keep them 
uh, at the base. Like a perfect spot to me in a suburban garden would be under the base, under a deciduous tree. So they get uh, winter sun, but then in summer they yeah. can just fly straight up, and they really do when you put them through, the, you know, through a little bit of an openish canopy. They'll just zip straight up in the air, and that beeline is a real thing. That making a beeline, it, it's such a direct thing, and you can, you can. We used to kind of sometimes conga line through the beeline, or we had them in the back garden, and you had to go past them to the compost bin. It was quite exciting. You could kind of time your trip to the compost bin between <laughs> bees and sort of zip, but, yeah. and they'd go flying past your ears, and it was kind of exciting. And, and look, uh, you know, back to that thing about people worried about them stinging them, and that different varieties of bees are, are different that way, and there are. You can get different types of, even with the honeybee, different types of honeybee, and some are more placid and some are less placid. Can, can I ask you, because some of these I had never heard of, is the Carniola honeybee in Australia? Because I see you've written this, this e-book to be uh, not suitable that for I worldwide know of. reading. And, right, and, I was pretty yeah, curious and, about that. I've never heard the, of this. The thing is, we've got an office and staff. We started in Melbourne, but we're, right. we're, we've got wondering. an office and staff in England too. So when we write these books, we write them for the whole yeah, world. Yeah, I started and, I started reading through it and thought, yeah. hang on a minute, and then I read some of the beginning and the end parts about the international distribution of your, yeah. of your courses, and I wondered about that. But I'm just interested because I see that the Carniola bee um, has been introduced into into bee stocks in the United States in a hope to decrease the impact of varroa mite because yeah. they're supposed to be resistant to varroa mites, well, which is that, pretty that's amazing. Right. That's right. and You might have to introduce those bees to Australia. <laughs> yeah, and uh, what, interestingly, you know, one that you see a lot and they reckon is very good over in England is the buck, Buckfast bee. Yeah, I read about those as well. And, and we mm. went to Buckfast Abbey about... about six weeks ago when we were over there which is quite interesting but mm. um, that, that's a, a yeah a, a very good one recommended right through Europe for people to just start off with but I've researched a bit in Australia for it and there's a couple of places that where they say you can get it in, a, oh, uh, really? um, in Australia no, not you can get it where they recommend it Oh. But I haven't found places where they actually say you can get it. So I don't know if you know anything that I don't. But no, I've never heard of the ministry. Yeah. The only one I know besides the usual um, honeybee is the Ligurian bee. I mean, the only... Yeah, the yeah, Italian one. On, on yeah. Kangaroo Island, particularly. Well, if mm. you do a search for um, uh, people supplying bees in Australia, um, there's a page that goes state by state. I was looking at it... Uh, a few days ago, and that actually, I, I saw about four different varieties of bees listed on that. Really? Page. I've never yeah. got that far. I've only been keeping bees about four years, so yeah. I've just got past the stage of, okay, I seem to have managed the swarming now, and yeah. I'm getting more honey. This is good. Takes a while to get a grip on it all. <laughs> and also, as far as the um, stingless ones, I went to the garden show on the Sunshine Coast about two years ago and there was someone selling hives of Australian stingless bees up there. Yeah, my cousin in Sydney is a very keen veggie gardener and he's well, he has uh, some stingless bees he's had for a short while. His, his daughter's school has the bees as well. They're, I know they're really popular up in Sydney yeah. uh, and, nor- and north of Sydney with schools because the kids can experience seeing bees and also they're native bees yeah. and yeah. There's, no, there's no danger to the children, so they're pretty popular for that yeah. kind of reason. Mm. Mm. John, I, I found the whole e-book absolutely fascinating to read and particularly 
I had no idea just how much they uh, the bees actually control their hive from the point of view of if 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 they feel they need um, more drones or they need more workers, um, they can actually create that situation. So they have total control over uh, over the full hive. Oh, I know it's a. It's fascinating. It's complicated. It's very complicated. <laughs> it's it's just yeah. amazing, and it, I mean, for anyone who doesn't even want to keep bees themselves to read um, the role of the hive and all the uh, the different castes within the hive is absolutely incredible. Yeah. The other thing that um, listeners mightn't realise is that. Um, that in wintertime, um, if you've got a shortage of, of, um, of flowers in the garden or nectar, um, some beekeepers actually have to feed the bees to avoid starvation oh, yes. of the hive. Yeah, that's right. So they're actually, you, you can actually buy pollen to feed the bees yep. with? Yep, yep. Yeah, that happens. <laughs> it, do, it doesn't seem as necessary. Well, it doesn't seem as common in the inner city parts of Melbourne. I think because it's slightly warmer, but also you've got. I think in any um, area where there's um, very very diverse gardens, and beekeepers are not as um, dependent on one or two main flowerings of eucalypts or tea trees or or or, na- or native flowerings and so the so city gardens are actually amazing so the city city beekeepers yeah. have two or three kilometers so oh, up to be... up to five suppose. Yeah. this book says up to um I think eight or something, yeah, but so it says mainly. Think it, about that yeah. in an urban environment. Yeah. Yeah. How many flowers Actually, even in the, the middle un, winter? The University look, of Tasmania in, has been in studying cold, in cold climates. It's distance. going to be more significant. So sure. if you're up in the uh, up in the mountains in northern Victoria where it gets snow, you might you might have to do something there. But <laughs> yep. in Melbourne, it's going to be different, and certainly. Uh, they wouldn't be doing it in uh, northern parts of Australia. No, no. Uh, now, look, because because we're essentially a, a gardening program, John, and I know we've got a lot of listeners out there who may not keep <coughs> bees themselves, but they certainly want to attract bees into their garden. Um, what sort of plants um, would you recommend to, to really help to attract the bees into, into their gardens? Oh, look... <laughs> Any, um, I mean, we all think of lavenders. Of pollen and... is going to be good for yep. for bees. In the book, we recommend various things, but um, you, you recommend um, plants with catkins, for instance. Yeah, well, yeah, they're good. They're good. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the herbs, uh, basil is a plant. I've got a little hedge of it out the front of my place, and. Um, uh, of course, I live on the Gold Coast now, but that flowers all year round, and that is the one place where there's always bees. Might be perennial basil he's talking about. Yeah, it is a perennial, yes, yeah. perennial basil. That's yeah. amazing. But, Even in Melbourne, that flowers all year round, and the bees go crazy for it. Yeah, mm. yeah. So, but but you know, look, anything with a lot of uh, flowers is going to be great. But you, the other. Important thing to know uh, when you talk about pollination, the other important thing to note there is just how significant it is. It's been said that, uh, well, Australia actually exports bee hives to America mm. every year okay. because their bees are getting killed by the varroa mites yep. all the time, and we're, we're doing that to replace them. And it's been said that if Australia stopped exporting bee hives to the United States, the food production in that country would drop 70%. Goodness me. 
Didn't know it was 70. That's a lot of When you think about that, you mm. really start to realise how important bees are. Absolutely. Yes, goodness me. And, of course, the other thing that, uh, that we as gardeners really have to watch is um, use of pesticides. Oh, mm. yes, of course. Um, <laughs> you, you spray an insecticide to kill um, a pest in the garden, you're going to kill the bee too. Yes, exactly. Mm. Yeah. Yes, and all your other beneficial insects. Oh, yeah, everything mm. that's going around killing those uh, baddies. So, you know, it's. Uh, I think people are a lot more aware these days and um, uh, not doing that anywhere near as much. But if you've got a neighbour who's spraying, um, it can sometimes be a bit problematic too. Yeah, you can sometimes come home and look at your beehive and find dead bees all around it, and that, that's all you can really assume. And it's just come from the yeah. drift. Yeah, yeah. Or, well, or they've they've been har- they've been harvesting it. Harvesting yeah. from the, the store. danger with yeah. lots of these, only can these insecticides mm. is that these are the the neonicotinoids. Yes. they're actually systemic. They're in the plant itself when yes. it's, it's taken up by the plant, so it's in the pollen. And in, any insect that, that visits that plant can actually be susceptible to that. Mm. That's the danger because it's actually not just contact. Yep. It, it's long term effects. Yep. Yeah. yeah, well, we all, we all need to recognise that if we're not responsible, um, we can have a big impact on our own food supply. Exactly. Mm. Yes, yes. So we, we really need to be looking after our, our little friends there in the garden. John, um, thank you for talking to us this morning. Um, I'm sure that uh, some of our listeners would probably love to get hold of um, a copy of this uh, book on beekeeping, but also... Um, so, as I say, some of your extensive list of, of other e-books, you've got things on organic gardening, climbing plants, roses, herbs, fruit, vegetables, um, garden design, for instance. Um, A- aquaculture goes well. Too. Yes, yes, fantastic. <laughs> aquaponics, we've got one on aquaponics. Yep, poultry as well. So, so many, uh, so many different topics that uh, I'm sure our listeners would be interested in. How do people go about? Getting one of these uh, e-books, they can get them off our website. Um, if you just look up acsbookshop.com. so that's just A C S A for Australia, C for um, uh, Chook, um, <laughs> S, S for Sam, <laughs> or Sunflower, <laughs> or Sunflower. Yep. Okay. And ACS um, Bookshop. Okay, dot com. Lovely. That's great. Thanks so much, John, for talking to us. It's been most fascinating. Thank you. Okay, bye. Okay, bye. Okay, we must uh, see if we can go to our listener who's been waiting patiently. We'll go to Anne in Oak Park. Are you there, Anne? Oh, uh, hello, listeners, and good morning, panel. Uh, It's uh, International Tree Day. And I want to plant a lovely big American cypress tree in my backyard. I need to know when to plant it, how far away from the fence, and uh, the small gum tree that I've already got in the centre of my backyard, and will it damage any pipe? (laughs) That's a loaded question. (laughs) It is a loaded question. Pipes, to my way of thinking, only get damaged if they're leaking. Yep. So if they're leaking, the roots will proliferate where there's wonderful nutrients yeah. or roots water. Roots find water. Yeah, mm. and no, then, if, if the pipe is sealed, 
they won't Root get doesn't it. even know it's no, there. No, they don't yeah. sniff it out. I yeah. did have an architect telling me the other day that he thought that Roots sniffed out pipes. Oh. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but not electrical pits. Um, so <laughs> no, I don't know about the truth in that. But... Um, uh, look, big trees obviously can create mechanical damage to things, and that does happen. And I, I have seen that in in Canterbury, where the plane trees in a street um, had their roots under a garage floor, which was a probably a fifty year old garage, thirty metres off the street, and the roots had grown under the garage floor and squashed the pipe under the the concrete slab oh, until right. it broke. Right. So you can get mechanical damage, of course. So you have to be a little bit careful of that. But look, I, I love the fact that people plant big trees. I think big <laughs> trees are wonderful. Um, I don't know whether the tree you're talking about will be susceptible to cypress canker, but um, that's a major issue mm. with uh, cypress trees now throughout certainly the southeast of Melbourne. Mm. Um, and uh, that that may mean that you get a lovely tree, and in twenty years' time, it uh, snuffs it. So I'd be I'd probably do a little bit of investigation as to whether or not the particular variety you're choosing is uh, susceptible to cypress canker. Right now, um, how far away from the fence line should it be? Because I don't want the neighbours to start chopping it up. <laughs> Perhaps you should talk to your neighbours first. Um, before planting a tree that, you know, if you're talking about a large cypress, it'll have a spread long-term of maybe 30 metres. So that'll be 15 metres into your yard and 15 metres into their yard. Right. So you reckon I should just have a chat to them? I I think it's a good community spirit thing to do. Right. Mm. Now, also, I've got a dead plum tree in the corner of my backyard. It's been dead for about five years now. Should I chop that down and let let the dead bark go for the insects and the the uh, fungi and everything, or should I have it removed and the stump and everything taken out, or what? I tend to leave stumps, yeah. if possible. Yeah. Yeah, just yep. take the top out. Yeah, chop it off, leave a little stump. You don't have to get a grinder if you're not planting something else no. in that spot. Mm, it will eventually break down. To yes, take yeah. them out, isn't it? In fact, in, in some ways, grinding is worse because what you do is you end up with a one metre by one metre by 500 millimetre deep hole that is filled with mm. sawdust, sawdust. Yes. and quite chunky yeah. sawdust mixed with soil. Yeah. Yeah. And, and unless you put bags of um, blood and bone in it over a two-year period, you'll not be able to grow anything near it. Yeah, mm. it's hard. And so you, you're really, off. you really break up your soil structure. I mean, mm. those those. Oh, they're just munches. They, they, they yeah, munches. They're, they're they just fantastic. really go berserk. It's the engineering you're coming out there. Okay, Anne, so... Uh, last but not least, my, my backyard, it's approximately 400 square metres large and I do get some uh, long grass in it. What can I uh, humanely or wisely get rid of the long grass without using sprays? Not? Can't can't you find someone to come in and and just um you With know mow it? Or is it mowing or do you want to get rid of it? Do you want to? Uh, I'm actually going to later on landscape the backyard, so I probably would prefer to. It does grow healthy and quite long if it's left over time. It, it depends on what sort of grass it. it is. If it's a if it's a cooch, they're going they're hard to smother out. But if it's just a 
I, I mean, I, I had a front, I hate mowing lawns, and so my front lawn at home, I just, as soon as I got there, I mulched it out with it. I, I, I cut it back really hard with a lawnmower, so I scalped it pretty much, mm. put a thick layer of mulch over the top, uh, and planted around. And now I don't have a lawn anymore. It's basically it's all garden bed, and it's and now that all the plants have taken over, there's so much shade that any remnant of grass that's coming back doesn't stand a chance anyway. Yep. But if I'd have done that with cooch, I might have ended up with a lot of stuff running up in through it. Uh, eventually, over time, as shrubs and things grow, you will outcompete grass if that's what you're going to do. But if you're going to leave it open, and it's got cooch in it. It'll keep coming. Mm. So or it's really, or cuckoo <coughs> not as bad. I don't find because it's it, it is it, it's a running grass as mm. well. Mm. But because it's fatter and thicker, mm. you can actually control it easier. Whereas the little wiry bits of cooch mm. are so difficult oh, to get. Shocking. They go down right. deep. You just, you just can't grass get them. Because yeah. um, cuckoo in clay, the northern suburbs, is just as bad. As, okay, yeah, 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 so yeah, it depends really. on the soil I think it's because you've got yeah. the sandy soil. Yeah. yeah. Oh, actually, I'm in clay, but I don't have cuckoo at my place. Yeah, it's horrible. Equal evil. <laughs> yes. So, Anne, does Thank that answer you your question? Much, Pamela. You've been a great help. Okay, appreciate then. Appreciate it. Happy okay. tree Bye-bye. planting. Bye. Ah, next up, we have uh, Hugh, who's out in Coburg. Good morning, Hugh. Good morning, guys. How are we? We're well. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, just about the bees. Yes. Very pleased to hear that I'm on the radio. That's fantastic. Well done. And to share the information is lovely. Right. Right, um, with the neonicotinoids, I think they're called. Yep. 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 They um they're treating seeds with them as well, so that's a caution when people are buying seeds to plant out. Right. Really, I haven't heard of that. None before. of ours. Well, it's well, treated with neonicotinoids. Why would they treat seeds with that? Uh, food seeds, so that the plant is resistant to aphids and things like that. It's just a precaution the bigger companies are taking, I believe. Mm. I haven't, I haven't heard of that seed treatment No, before. I haven't either. I have to keep um, a look out for that. I'll follow that up. But I, I, can, I can imagine there's all sorts of things that like, you know, the big seed companies do to um, Must be pretty interfere with seeds. I'm not surprised. It's chemical to be able to get through the seed coat mm. into the plant as it's growing. Yeah, they, that's mm. the why the systemicness of the neonicotinoids. I don't know the term of them, but I have researched and mm. they're getting, yeah, so they're treating mm. the seeds, so they're in the plant, so the plant's more resistant to the pests. Wow. And Gee. seedlings. Depends where we buy our seedlings from, but also, same trouble. Yeah. It is amazing what happens in agriculture. I mean, you don't mm. really know. Mm. I was at a farm mm. a little while ago, a friend's farm, and he was telling Sometimes me. You don't want to know. No, he was <laughs> telling me about, you know, mm. up in the Wimmera, uh, about a gas that they inject into the soil um, just uh, just above the seeds, and that, that it is in a perfect layer just above the seeds, and that mm. kills any emergent seeds Not that come up. No, 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 no. I don't know what it was called. I forget what it was called. But uh, but the, it but because the so anything that germinates in that layer mm. is killed. But oh, because wow. the I actual sown seeds. seeds are deeper, they germinate below it and they grow mm. through it. Um, but you sort of wonder, oh, you know, yeah. <laughs> there's all, all these things that go, go on that, of course, you don't know about. That's uh, right. Good, bad or otherwise. Yeah. Mm. Well, and I think us as gardeners, and, this, and we're, you know, we are gardeners, we, we're looking to be diverse. We're looking to, you know, part of the reason, well, most of the reason that I got into to gardening and growing food was, was to grow, to know the lineage of my food. Exactly. Mm. And to know that what I what has gone into it is, is quite open. Yes. Um, yeah. And clearly we... 
don't all get to grow our own food, and, and but you can make choices about the food that you consume too. By organic is one way you know that those you know, there's procedures in place that that um, accredit organic producers, mm. so you know they're not and farmers putting, markets and farmers well. markets. There yeah. are ways that we can mm. actually be more aware of our food system, <laughs> and, uh, and growing a little ourselves uh, and as much as we possibly can is probably the the best way to do that because we see the whole process. Yes. Yep. Well done, guys. So yeah, the organic. Seedling punnets and the organic seeds for those of us that want to grow our stuff at home or on a slightly larger scale, we need to make sure we start with the organics now and stay away from the neonicinoids for the sake of the bees, which we've learned last time. And then save our own seed. Yeah, like we're going to eat better quality food. We don't Absolutely. have to yet, so. Absolutely. And I urge everybody to buy honey that's from the local farmer's market mm. or mm. from Cold a filled honey. horse because... Mm. Lots of honey's coming from overseas, being mixed up and labelled as Australian honey, and it's not. Yes, not you can taste the difference. That mm. uh, yeah. my uncle's a beekeeper, and I've been having you know, his his honey for thirty years. And when I run out, and the kids want more honey, and we go to the supermarket and get one of those candy jars. I can't eat it. It just doesn't taste like it's honey. It's pretty awful. But there is a huge difference mm. in, yes. in real honey to the commercial honey. Absolutely. Uh, so if you can get hold of real honey, it costs quite a bit, but it's well worth it because it's so much better. Mm. Okay. Well, thanks for all your comments, Hugh. Thank you, guys. Keep okay. Bye. It's another one of those things where the um, true cost of food production doesn't really come through. Mm. And I think I saw something the other day about, I forget what the statistic was, the amount was, but that farmers essentially just don't receive anywhere, anywhere near the same amount per unit of food they're producing as they did, say, 20 and 30 years ago. Oh, no, they don't. It's just ridiculous. Oh, yeah. That, can, and that is the issue. Cheaper. Yeah. It's, it's, Food's it's too cheap. It's for farmers. Yeah. That's yeah. why they're having to do these practices. That's why. Because, yeah. That's right. Why dairy farmers are going broke, blah, blah, mm. blah. Yeah, 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 it's all insane. Mm. Yeah. yeah. How do you go? How, do, you, do you worry about the fact that um, your bees might, like, do you give your bees a stern talking to in the morning and, <laughs> and say, now, when you go out today, I don't want you to go to number 35 or yeah, number 53. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen yeah. them out it's, there. It's interesting. One of my um, – no, they, they seem to be okay. I don't. I very, very rarely have, see those death events. But uh, And I know – I mean, I know they do go a long distance, but I, um, I know from living in my street a long time quite a lot of my neighbours, and so I know that they don't use chemicals. I know one that does mm. right down the end of the street. A lo- lovely old guy, but he came up to my place not long ago and he was looking at all the bees out the front of my nature strip on the perennial basil. And he, he was sort of – and I know he sprays everything. And he said, oh, gee, you, you've got so many bees here. Um, and it was his very broken Italian because he speaks um, – my, my Italian's bad and his English is not so great <laughs> uh, and a very heavy dialect, so even my schoolgirl Italian doesn't cut it. And, yeah, he was really amazed that – oh, how come you've got all these bees? And, I mean, one thing is the beehive, but I've got flowers for them and also I, I don't spray anything. Exactly. Yeah, you know, he, he was saying that he's getting less – over time he's had less production. And I think he – when you go and look at his garden now, I think, I think he's kind of um, – to some extent on his ground level, his fruit trees don't seem as bad. But he's, I think he's done a bit of poisoning of his ground. And oh, he might have exhausted it too. I think, yeah. I think yes. he probably has. He does put manure on, but – you just get this bad impression, and I, and I I don't see any of my bees in there. They're not. They're just looking at it, going, not going in there. <laughs> <laughs> <That's> <laughs> <right>. <laughs> Whereas another neighbour has a massive.
massive, massive crab apple, like the, one of the biggest ones you'd ever see. I think it's just a straight-out floribunda, you know, the Japanese, but mm. you'd never expect it to get this big. And, yeah, they joke about um, charging my bees, you know, oh, that's, um, <laughs> yes, that's you know, right. <laughs> <laughs> 10 cents per bee. And <laughs> check them in, check them yeah, out, yeah, yeah. weigh them. She's always saying, oh, if you wonder where they are, they're all down here. And you, you, can, you know, it's that fantastic noise in spring. Yeah. I love that when you go past a tr- like a really good eucalypt or a, yeah. or a bottle brush or... Mm. Yeah, there's some lovely bottle brushes in our street. The bees love them as mm. street trees and, and this crab apple or some of the ukes at times and yeah, or the ukes and more those crazy parrots, but um the uh the lorikeets but or whatever they are. But um yeah, bees, yeah, bzz, mm. it's just a beautiful sound. It is hear. a beautiful sound. Absolutely. You are listening to the three C R gardening show. In the studio this morning we have Karen Sutherland, Evan Golke and Tim Sansom. We'd love to hear from you. We're running through until 9.15, our usual time slot. So if you'd like to give us a call, the number is 94190155. That's 94190155. Uh, we'll go to our next caller. We have uh, Virginia, who's also out in Coburg. Good morning, Virginia. Hello. Um, I've got a question about um, Agastachi. I've got some big agastachi that I wanted to move but they have already started reshooting and I'm wondering if I can still move them. Yes, absolutely. Okay. It, um, agastachi is one of the things that just, it, in our climate, it doesn't really go into full mm, shutdown. A bit like some of the mode. salvias, yeah. yeah it's, especially it's, in okay. the inner city at yeah. Coburg, yeah. especially there. Yeah. So, it, I mean... A true herbaceous perennial, and it's a herbaceous perennial. It has permanent roots, but and in its top, its foliage dies back to the to that crown each each winter, and yeah. it comes up from there again. It's a, it's one of those, um, but in our climate, it doesn't fully shut down. But now is when it's at its slowest. So okay. if there's any time to move it, it's now. Okay. Uh, and you can you could dig up that clump and chop it up into depending how big it is. You could chop it up into sort of fist size pieces, and okay. each one of those will grow away as a as a new plant. Okay, and there's still quite a lot of... There's a bit of dead growth from last year. You chop it all off. Can I chop all of that off? And and if I cut off some of the new shoots, it won't matter at this point? No, it won't matter. If if it's robust, if if the plant was happy last year and it's got lots of... You know, the crown is thick and healthy, it'll all come happily from that crown again. Yeah, okay. And the the new growth too, this time of year, it is still so cold and you're not getting much um, evaporation from the leaves. So the issue when you're moving things is often that the new leaves, um, when they're not fully formed don't have the waxy protection or you know more waxy protection yeah. on the outside of them but that's not going to happen this time of year so it's quite safe and there's okay. a, there's a nice agastache article in in the upcoming organic garden magazine okay. oh brilliant <laughs> i was going to get that anyway yeah okay. but not this one but the new but the one and after that oh, the one after <laughs> okay. yeah the september I think it comes out september it's coming yeah. yeah yeah okay okay because the any information you look up on the internet about agastache i think is referring to North America, and they're saying you don't cut them till mid-spring and this kind of thing. Oh, really? So, yeah. Well, they're, they are an American native. Yeah. They, this, mm. they treat them as a, as a, it's a native plant for them. Yes. Yeah. But yeah. they, the, the, in our climate, in they just keep going. They, and they're one of the longest flowering mm. things. <laughs> they're fantastic. They, yeah. really if you want something flowering. that's got flower for bees, for, for most um, of summer they'll flower on well, and on. Well, interesting though, 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 the longer 
having just looked into this, the um, the <laughs> longer tube dagger statues, and I've noticed this too in my nature strip garden, they're really um, access, accessed by the blue banded bees, oh, the that's native bees. Because I've got a yeah. couple in my, and I have yeah, a blue but not the honey bee bees. that hangs around my front door. They all love the time long tubed salvias and agastaches. Oh, okay. But the um, if you want. Um, Agastaches for honeybees, and you're better off with the Agastache funiculum, the yep. big fluffy flower, big fluffy oh, heads. Yes, and mm. it, but they have very short flower tubes. Oh, and okay. the Korean, that's that's the, uh, the Korean mint the is similar. Blue fortune one. Blue fortune, yeah, blue fortune. Yep. That's a really yep. nice um, yep. form of that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Mm. Thank you very much for your help. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Oh, bye. That's interesting because I've got a yeah. I've got a, a cultivar of uh, Agastache out the front door of my place and. I've never seen blue banded bees. I hadn't as much. until this agastache. And it's always yeah, there. They the love this. It must be the scent that draws there. them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah, I managed to finally get a little snap of. Oh, because I've been trying bee. to get the photograph. Yeah, right? yeah. Because <laughs> they are, they sort of come and then they go really quickly. Yeah. Like, Damn it! Slow down, bee. <laughs> <laughs> it's a wonderful time in the garden, isn't it? I mean, that just highlights what you can do if you grow a lot of herbaceous perennials mm. and that type of thing that you can move around. So it's mm. it's actually really exciting and a really busy time in the garden now. Yeah, and I think. I think there's a really good thing about herbaceous perennials and it's probably something that's, that's underrated for most gardeners to understand what they are. Mm. I mean, we often, we often go to the nursery and buy the potted colour that's out the front and that's our bit of colour explosion and that's our flower. And it's, but it's a really impulse thing and it doesn't have the permanence or the flexibility mm. that herbaceous perennials have. Mm. So, you know, perennials are things that we can... We, obviously, the name suggests you can enjoy them year after year. They're actually, I think, better performers in terms of flower, that, uh, and you get better flower structure. For a longer period of time longer as period well. Longer period of time. Mm. You don't have to replace them each year. You can do like Virginia's you can doing. Divide you can them chop up. them up, yeah. and you know you've got years of mm. and share you can them with your neighbours. Yeah. Yes, you don't have to yeah. keep going back to get potted colour from mm. from the box store. And you can pick the winners. So yeah. you know you, the ones that do well, you, <laughs> yeah. you, you you divide them up and spread them around. And the ones that don't, mm. you hoik them. Yeah, mm. and, and um, then it's and then and that, or you give them to your mates. Or, yeah, you know, <laughs> what the ones that don't perform? <laughs> yeah. <give> your mates <laughs> yeah. because your garden wants to look better. Then. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's and then the next plan. step, the next step in that is for herbaceous perennials, and and this is a discussion for the for the summer garden really is. You then start to get discerning about your colour combinations and you start to get to mm. this whole concept of herbaceous mm. border. So flowers are, sure, they're functional and they're for, for pollen and they're for fruit production, but they're also for joy for us from a, from a gardener's point of view. Mm. And there's a certain, well, there's a real um, great pleasure and, and a challenge in picking colour combinations of herbaceous perennials. You've got to make sure they're the right. They, they all flower together at the same time. They mm. have, a, have a flower colours that work and structures that work with each other. That's when you start to get into the, some of the real fun of, of, of flower gardening. It's, it's quite indulgent, but it's actually a really cheap and fulfilling pursuit to do something like that. But painting Even, with flowers it in is a way. A, absolutely mm. painting is, with flowers. Yes. And you could start mm. with you know just three. You know, If you get an Achillea terracotta with an Agastache blue fortune mm. and nice perhaps combo. a little cat mint or something, yeah. mm. the walk was low. Mm. You've got three mm. things that are at different heights, different colours, all flower at the same time. And you, and you can do it in a pot even. Mm. Uh, and you can get it's, – it's quite sophisticated um, gardening at that mm. level. Um, Absolutely. But fun. Yes. Mm. yes. I, I remember uh, reading an article a long time ago when Michael McCoy was writing for The Age still, a column, and he wrote about that kind of gardening and how uh, he, was, he was making a little bit of a comment um, about a particular form of gardening that was on the rise at the time that involved a lot of box hedges and straight lines that's quite popular still mm. um, in Melbourne with one 
main in a city. Well, yeah, yeah, and one main person. Trying to be very subtle about this, but <laughs> but yeah, he was having a not too dis- well disguised dig at that kind of gardening and saying for the people that maintain these gar- those kind of gardens, it requires no skill whatsoever. All you're doing is just shearing down lines with either by hand clippers or by mechanised clippers. All you're doing is create, cutting these shapes. There's no skill for the gardener, whereas the skill to combine flowering perennials and bulbs and ground, flowering ground covers and all sorts of things, the skill to get those working and at, at the right time and to maintain the plants too, it, it's, it's, um, it requires a lot of skill and constant observation and yeah. it's a totally different kind of gardening. It's an engaging one. I, yeah. mm. I think often people can be put off because it is, oh, you know, you've got to be a master gardener to do it. But master gardeners start with one or two combinations. Mm. They start with the simple, mm. and that's that's how you build it. Uh, and I mean, I one in... requires the mind and engagement, and the other is almost mindless. Yeah. You could call it meditative, just pruning, <laughs> but you know, <laughs> there's only so much you can do. It's a, a case of trying things, isn't mm. it? So I tried a garden that was all burgundy f- foliage, you know, just for the heck of it, just to see what what would happen. And you know, it was interesting. And it did work okay, but it was really dark. You know, it was like this yeah. great big mm. black hole. Yeah. <laughs> so even if you was had the bright, yeah, yeah, that's right. it was in my garden. It wasn't in somebody else's. You only try things in your own garden. But it was really interesting to to do the exercise. Mm. And and there's lots of perennials and so on that you can you can sort cool. of dig up and divide and spread and so on to do that. It's quite a malleable um, thing. You can change it. You can work yeah. with it. Yes. Yeah. So I think that's that's the great thing because you can experiment. Mm. And mm. and you know you're also including trees and and shrubs mm. and all of that into the background mm. and what that does for the vista and and mm. so on. Um, so it's it's a wonderful thing to be able to do and, and you change it. You can change it every year. This time right. of year, you get in there this and is, you change yeah. it. All. Oh, I didn't like mm. that. Yeah. You chuck it out and you either divide something from somewhere else in the garden or you go out and buy something mm. new and put it in there and then you try that and how yep. did that work? You know, and um, it's just that it's slow. You know, because it's yeah, it's, not it's a year. It's a one-year thing. So you, mm. you go out for a year yep. and then – so it takes a bit of patience. But I think that's the wonderful meditative thing about mm. gardening yep. is that it isn't instant. Mm. Um, and that is a bit of what you're saying with, the, with those types of gardens that are very structured. They come along with very structured houses, mm. uh, structured backyards, and the backyards are like the lounge room. Mm. Now they're outdoor, so indoor. They're sort of yeah, indoor. yeah. Mm. So they're tidy, they're mm. neat. Um, There's very little biodiversity. Yeah, yeah. Not much for the bees. Yeah, but, or but, a lot, but a big section of the market loves that, mm. and mm. and you've that, that's okay. Mm. You know, they, mm. they can do different. that. Everyone's mm. different, mm. Uh, and that's okay. Very easy gardens to design. You know, mm. wonderfully easy to design if you need to. Yeah. Um, and and as you say, wonderfully easy to to maintain, and a lot of mm. people like that. But it doesn't have the. If you're into gardening, mm. you know you just don't go down that line. And you can no. do elements. Mm. You can do structural elements uh, in a in a, a very formal garden. Mm. But something like a little patch of herbaceous perennials, even if it's like in pots, is just a little bit of pop or a little bit of mm. joy that you can mm. you can do a bit of both. I think. Mm. I think I think a lot of people are time poor, and that's part of the reason they mm. they'll go with the sort of static landscape, which is mm. mostly yuccas, and you know it might be might be some hedging, but you know uh, low vigor ones. Um, but that's because there's this stigma around flowering perennials take heaps of work. Mm. They don't actually. They you 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 chop them back to the ground. The agastache is a good example. Chop I was just going to say agastaches are perfect. I mean, and they, they require so mm. little and care. They flower for ages. Mm. I was I was looking at some photos the other day because I was scanning some slides that I had from the US, and I met um, um, his name was Olm. So Van Sweden and Olm. They they oh, and I met, met with him, and he took me around wow. some gardens in Baltimore. 
And um, amazing gardeners. What, oh yeah, amazing gardeners. Mm. But so lucky. <laughs> the, these were like pu- public gardens and one private garden, and uh, they were full of herbaceous perennials and on mass, mm. you know, absolutely on mass. And I was looking at oh, he was fabulous too, you know, mm. because we were looking at this garden outside the a library, right. the, the and I, I was way. sort of taking a few photographs, and then um, I look over and all I could see was his bum, <laughs> because he was down, he was weeding, and he was chucking weeds out <laughs> over his shoulders. This is a guy who was at that time at the peak of his fame, I would say, mm. you know, mm. and uh, and he was in there weeding, you know, he he true gardener mm. that guy, mm. and um, anyway, but the, the the difference in Australia is that. Their gardens end up under snow, mm. and, and this is the big difference. Whereas ours don't, so we sort of unfortunately they get dramatic changes in their gardens. Yeah, <laughs> if that's right, and mm. so so they're not they don't want they don't necessarily need things to look like anything mm. for mm. three or four months of the so they year. They don't go outside. No, that's that's right, and mm. it's it's very very cold. Mm. Whereas we're outside three hundred sixty five days mm. of the year. So it is mm. it is a very different thing. Mm. And so it is, I think, more difficult to plant those sorts of gardens in a suburban place mm. here than it is to do it in mm. the cold climates. Mm. Uh, because you don't potentially want a garden that looks horrible through the winter here. Mm. Mm. So you, you obviously have to bring in things that are flowering mm. in the winter. You have to bring in your heliboris and so on, yeah. um, oh, your and daphnes. And, and some structure. And, yeah, that's exactly. right, and some yeah. structure. But, but they it's so important. That then, that, and they, mm. did lots of, they do mm. lots of nice things with some of their smaller gardens mm. um, with uh, regard to um, plants that look quite good when they're dried still. Oh, yeah, so, absolutely. Yes, like like mm. the sedums and things yeah. like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So even Miss Canthus. Miss Canthus looks fabulous. Yeah, that's right. Um, so, but it is it I'm is harder. I think it is mm. harder to do it here than it mm. is to do it there purely a, because of that downtime. I know we've got a few mm. calls and we're going, but, but I think there's actually an, a unique Australian version of that that we're developing, which is around having oh, yeah. herbaceous perennials, a mixed border, true yep. mixed border, where you've got shrubs as structure, they stay there for the winter time. You've got some winter flowering shrubs or some other things that give it some some balance. But in amongst that are the perennials. It doesn't have to be a perennial border in the English sense where it dies flat to right. the ground. That's right. That's the ticket. That's got a hedge behind we, it. We need a slight difference with ours. Yeah. We need a bit more backbone and structure and a, mm. a well, year round. More, mm. yeah. And then mm. the, the accents that come up mm. through the mm. season. So I love this time of year in parts of my garden where where the Heliborus phytitis are flowering and sitting up there and, ev- and, and miscanthus in the background and this and that. And it's it's... It's sort of open, mm. you know, because other yes, things are yeah. cut back and so on. But then they're the highlight. Yep. Mm. Um, I, I think it has a real calming feel mm. about it, whereas then when you get into the summer and, the and so, yeah, it's just <laughs> going off. <laughs> um, yeah, and it's also relaxing because you don't need to do a lot. You, you, you can just yeah. admire it yeah. over it that period off. of time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah absolutely. Mm. Okay, let's get to some of these callers. First up, we have uh, Jill from the Herb Society. Good morning, Jill. Hi, Pam. Karen. Hello, Jill. <laughs> I don't know who else it is. Hi, uh, Jill. <laughs> Hello. Tim. Um, I just want to tell a few things. Yes. Um, the foods technology in VCE is going to have next year about subsistence gardens and so native plants, indigenous mm. plants are on the, on the curriculum. Good. Nice. Wow. So I've negotiated with the principal for us to plant a whole lot of indigenous plants in our school garden. I've negotiated with the gardener as well. Right. And the foods technology um, leader is absolutely thrilled. And we're going to plant, you know, lemon pepper and wattle, wattle seed and um, all four, I know the four 
um, salt bushes and Fantastic. warrigal greens and so on. Right. And we're going to plant them all near the catering area, which is a new kitchen built last year. So it's going to be exciting, isn't it? That's great. That's fantastic. Yeah. Mm. And the other thing is now that um, after Karen's talk to the Herb Society a couple of months ago, Joanne Cody is now going to in, have Indigenous plants and the traditions of the Indigenous people and so on on the Herb Society website. Oh, fantastic. And so that's Herb Society Vic, one word, dot org for organisation, dot au. And now next Thursday, Gary Bradmeyer, who's a wine enthusiast, is going to talk about herbs as they've been used over the centuries in making wine and how uh, different herbs have been used in wine as medicines. You know, things like carnations were used to flavour wines after the wines were made, and that should be a fascinating talk. So that's at Burnley, Horticultural, Room 10. (laughs) Uh, you go in via the steel ramp on the main building at um, sort of get there at 7.15 because we start sharply at 7.30. Okay. And have um, a raffle of a plant and a book and a nice herb supper. And that's 7.30 Thursday coming. And anyone's welcome. Excellent. Okay. Thanks, Pam. Thanks, Jill. Bye. Bye. Okay, next up we have uh, Ken out in Sunshine. Good morning, Ken. Good morning. Look, I've got a a very, very funny bee story. Go ahead. And um, I used to work for the gas and fuel, and my boss said to me, come down in the yard and give us a hand in about 10 minutes. And I said, all right. All of a sudden I walk outside the store and I walk down the little road, little, and all of a sudden he runs out of the yard and a million bees chasing him, oh. and he's singing out, run, Ken, run, Ken. Well, all I could do was drop down on the ground laughing. <laughs> <laughs> and we rang up uh, uh, a friend of a, a friend of mine who used to work, work in the gas and fuel, well retired now, um, a bloke by the name of Hines, and his uncle was Kevin Hines. Right. And um, anyway, uh, he, he was a bee hiver. And he came out and he put the queen bee in the in the in the, in the car, and all the bees went in the car. With me. He just drove off. <laughs> in the car. I, said, I said to my boss, "There's a man's man." <laughs> Goodness me! So oh, there you go. There you go. Well, thanks for that story, Ken. That's great. <laughs> it's a pleasure, and your gardening program is getting better and better and better. Oh, good on you. Okay, bye. bye. And uh, next up, we have Kim in Reservoir. Good morning, Kim. Yeah, good morning, panel. How are you all going? We're well, well, thanks. Thank you. That's good. I've got two questions. One's probably one you've heard all the time and I can't remember. And that's my cauliflower's come up and it was looking fantastic. But now the, you know, the cauliflower part of it, the curd part's just all spread all over the place. It's not got a really good tight head. And I'm just wondering what's happened to that and what I can do to stop that in the future. When did you plant it? Do you remember? Oh, I reckon about at least a month ago. Maybe oh, as a seedling, two, okay. Yeah, as a seedling, yeah, yeah. And it was from a good, um, uh, good guy. I get my seedlings from. He's a local organic grower, so and he's in the area. 
I, I they usually to, got good stuff. I tend to find with all the brassicas that if they're a bit stressed uh, or have a transplant shock or they haven't had the perfect run, they will actually stretch and bolt. But basically it sounds like what it's doing is it's going up into flower before it's heading up properly. Uh-huh. Would, that, would that be what, you, what you're saying? Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. So I've had the same thing happen with a couple of mine this year. I, I normally sow mine and plant them out in February, March, so quite early, to try oh, and get yes. them to be, to be cropping around the middle of winter because they slow right down once the weather cools down. Yep. But mine happened this year. I was I'm on tank water. I had hardly any water, and I couldn't get enough water onto them. Um, so they actually really struggled for the first six weeks of their life, and they've never come back. They've they, okay. they now they're weakened and they're bolting through. So can you still eat them or just leave oh, them? Absolutely. Oh, absolutely, yes. still eat them. Yeah, still yeah, you can eat them. the whole yep. thing. Yeah, um, oh, okay. it, it, it's yep. just not as it's not as great looking as the eight dollar ones you get at the soup. At the very least, put it into soup. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Make sure you That's eat why it. Definitely. Growing them. I didn't want to buy the $8 ones at the supermarket. No, exactly. Um, yeah. yeah, and the other one is I got some saffron last year and I've put it in um, a couple of big pots and I've sort of got it hidden in the front yard so no one pinches it. Because um, <laughs> yeah. it's the world's most valuable yeah. commodity. Yeah. 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 yeah, and I mean, I'm just wondering, can I just keep it in the pots or do I need to put it in the ground or...? No, it'll be fine in a uh, pot. Yeah, yeah they don't take up much room. In pots, but the main thing is that what we were talking about at the very beginning of the program is the chilling. Mm. And the only issue with growing them in the pot is it might not get as much chilling as in the ground. And okay. they... What I found was when I bought them from the nurseries the first year, they'd you know I'd get some that would flower because they'd been chilled correctly in Tasmania or mm. wherever they'd been grown, uh, usually Tasmania. And then the second year, a bit like tulips, you know, the second year yep. they didn't get enough chilling because it's not cold enough where I am, and so I subsequently never got any more flowers. So the, that's the only benefit about putting them. Um, I, I've never tried doing the thing. With, as you do with tulips, I've never tried them actually them putting them the in, the fridge, fridge. in the fridge. Yeah, yeah, that would probably make a lot that probably more would sense. Work. Yeah. Treat yeah. them the same as yeah. tulips. You could dig them up um, at, mm. or get them out of the pot at the end of the season when they've died down and bung them in the fridge for a bit. In or... some, um, you know, some co- coconut fibre, yeah. peat, you know, okay. moist and just wrung out a little bit. And they can bit go in and... there for a month or so at least. <clears> yes, yeah, yeah, so I don't know the exact time, but one or two months yeah. or something. Yeah, yeah. Try that. Okay. But, I mean, a lot of us have been having pretty cold winters, so anyone that's sort of oh, in open cold, ground, yeah. <laughs> yeah. In, you know, outside of the city are probably getting enough chill on the ground. Mm. Okay. But, yeah, I, I agree that in, in a warmer mm. spot, warmer ground. Yeah, or in a, in a pot, as you are saying, yeah, in yeah. a pot, that's mm. the only thing. You do tend to put them in a pot because they're so special, you don't want to lose, mm. you know, I don't know yeah, if you get where they are. Them around. Yeah, I don't, I don't yeah. know where, um, where's the best place to put them, and also I thought if they're in a pot and... Full, you know, they're um, quite easy. They're hidden. So when you say they're hidden, they, they really do need full sun, though. They're yeah. one of those... Okay. Um, they're kind of hidden around where the um, saffron, not the saffron, the sage is. So you can't... I, I wouldn't be too far. worried about thieves because... <laughs> no one knows what they are. Yeah, no, <laughs> that many people know. Just take the label <laughs> out. Yeah. You know, the one yeah. with the dollar signs on it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if I take the label out, I'll forget what it yeah. is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Don't worry. Okay, then. Good luck with okay, that. thanks very much. Thank you. Take the sign Bye. out that says retirement fund. Yeah. <laughs> They're a bit of a, one of those holy grail yeah. type things. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Like blue poppies or, or you know. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh, I'd love to grow this. Yeah. <laughs> and before the show, you were talking about um, a native carrot. Oh, yes. And, and yeah. just before I ask about that, though. It's my the, new holy grail what, for this spring. Yeah. <laughs> what... Um, why do when we talk a lot of people and, and the lady from the herb society mentioned you know they're, they're putting in a, a native garden an edible garden so why do people very rarely 
bring up yam daisies, which mm. was really the staple of this part uh, of the world. Well, yes, in fact, across yeah, a yeah. huge mm. part of Australia, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it actually, was it was the oh. staple. It was obviously traded and so on, mm. and yeah, um, yeah. and it, it hasn't. Well, one reason there's um, not that many <clears throat> indigenous reasons. There are a few more now. There's there's a few more the last year or so that have been growing them, but they've been very infrequently available. And they are very difficult to grow. And actually, I went to an author talk. We, I brought in Bruce Pascoe's book last time I was yes. in here. And so I've been following this little trail. And I went to the author talk and that was one of the questions I asked was, you know, um, about growing them. And he said that they're actually about to put out a little booklet that does give a bit more information on how to grow them. What I was talking about was that if they were so widely spread through the northern suburbs, say, you know, because there, there are people also growing them on the Mary Creek quite successfully. Um, a, a, a group of people are doing that. But I've had trouble putting them into gardens and getting them to succeed. And the what the conditions that Bruce Pascoe is talking about in his book, Dark Emu, are about soil that was very different to what we see now, soil that, you know, animals, when the first horses that were brought to Australia sunk into this ground. And it, it's very, very different. I said, what, you know, what do you think has happened? That, is that if you're planting microceras or the yam daisy into the, the same areas as they were widespread in years ago, it just there doesn't seem any hope. And he said he thinks that there was a large amount of... Um, of uh, soil erosion, and as he as he points out in the book, you know, just he's just he's piecing historical documentation together bit by bit from early early explorers and you know some of the first white people to come to Australia, what they saw, what they observed, and it seems that soil conditions changed within say four or five years, mm. and the soil was compacted by the. Um, by the you know the different anim- the mm. cloven hoofed animals that came to Australia as opposed to the, the, the indigenous the animals, mm. yeah, and so yeah, soil soil the topsoil that maybe was there just isn't there anymore because he talked about that because of this compaction, flooding happened and apparently Aboriginal people hadn't seen flooding that that the soil was so it's hard to imagine the mm. soils of the northern and western suburbs of Melbourne being so porous and mm. taking in water so easily that there just wasn't flooding. So it sounds like conditions change so much in such a yeah. short time. So compact, soil compaction is what he's saying. Especially and the, on the, creeks and things, which is where is, – is it a riparian thing? Uh, no, no, it's more just an okay, open, an open, open paddock thing. So yeah. one of the issues is the, is the heavy soil. And another thing, which um, is just a bit of speculation so far, but I think it's going to come up in this booklet that they're producing, is the incorporation of charcoal. So there was a lot of – the Aboriginal women who were working the yam daisy – we're just using digging sticks. So I'm making this digging motion, which doesn't work very well on radio. <laughs> <It looks laughs> but great. everyone's nodding at me. <laughs> so there was this digging, digging, digging. So the soil was um, was aerated, I guess. So it was aerated and it had charcoal incorporated into it. But I think that over many years it, it didn't have the same compaction. And so it, it probably had a lot more... Uh, you know, it wasn't the scorched earth policy that happened over many years. There wasn't any clearing, and so any clearing of, um, you know, smaller mulch type particles. There was natural mulch. That's what I'm trying to say. So I think conditions are very different. So that's a long-winded way of saying yam daisies are really hard to grow. <laughs> really, really, yes. you can get them to grow nurseries, and then you put them in, and then they just don't come back the next year. Mm. And so it's been very frustrating for. For my, I mean, I haven't made a big study of growing yam daisies. I've tried to grow it myself, but it, it doesn't grow in my shady garden. It seems mm. to need those big open cleared spaces. Mm. So I've just been putting it in other places. And Yeah, I'm and trying a few at the enough, moment. Yeah. Down in a, I've got an area of bush and uh, the top area, which was um, pasture grass. I'm 
it's going back now to native grasses and so on. I've planted some through there, and so far for about a year they've they've done okay. Well, that's, but that's it'll be great. just interesting yeah. to see how they go. I've also yeah. read that book. Um, yeah, it's really really interesting Bruce for Pascoe a gardener. Yeah, it, it's for it's really interesting. I think what was really interesting about that book was how little we know of um, townships and so on that were in the country before. The How Europeans little we know about a lot of things, aim. it seems. Well, it was like it was just yeah. sort of mm. written out of the records yeah. mm. and, and mm. no one was ever taught that, that they, no. there was actually permanent settlements. What, what's the no. title of the book? Um, Dark Emu. Dark Emu. Yeah, mm. that, and to me there's a bit of a – I'd recommend two other books too for, garden, for gardeners. Dark <clears> Emu <throat> and then the year after that um, was published um, the, old, the Biggest Estate on Earth or The Largest Estate on Earth um, by Bill Gamage. Oh, yeah, no, no. And then after, and then just this year was published the oldest foods on earth, and I always forget his name. Apologies, author. Anyway, um, so those three to me they reference each other and they fit in together, uh, as far as telling a story of indigenous or, or indigenous gardening in a way or indigenous mm. farming. Mm-hmm. So yeah, what I was saying to. Um, um, people, what Evan's bringing up is that I was talking about a native carrot seeds that I've just got hold of from Nindathana Seeds in Western Australia. Um, gave it to Vink, Vink to Victorian Indigenous Nurseries Co-op to raise for me because I don't have the space or the sun and um, not great at growing carrots anyway and don't have the proper conditions. And they were saying that they'd had seed, a uh, native carrot seed from Watson's Creek, which is that near kangaroo ground. Mm. And so they'd actually had some of that from years ago and as Pam pointed out this morning that's a fairly shady area Mm. so there's a lot more to be investigated and these are truly perennial carrots so a bit like the yam daisy they're in they're kind of grown a bit like some of these other things I've brought in today which are not native to Australia Mm. but the yarkon the the, um, edible canna things that you break off a piece like a dahlia Break off a piece. You've got, you know, you've got the mother plant and the like an orchid too. That's a similar growth pattern, and you're you're planting the mother. You're harvesting one piece. You're, um, yeah, and you're planting the other piece back in again. So, mm. um, you've got a very long term permanent or permaculture type food system. So they they're great plants. And the reason why I'm really interested in the native carrot was that someone alerted me when I'm giving all these talks about native herbs. It's lovely because people come up to me and say, oh, afterwards and say, oh, did you see such and such? Which I didn't, of course. And and so uh, Landline, if you look up Landline native carrots, and I think they've got another um, um, Aboriginal name, uh, Yolks or something. I've really forgotten. I'm sorry. Anyway, Western Australia and this uh, agronomist in Western Australia, that's what the Landline Project program is about, has been studying about 20 native tubers for quite a few years. And these were the two that he came up with, the native carrot and one of the native sweet potatoes, which I've already got some seed of, so I've got some seed of that to try. It's from a warmer climate, but I'm just keen to try. I've been growing mm. sweet potatoes yeah. anyway. And... Um, yeah, yeah, these are two that he came up with that had really good flavour but were also suitable for large-scale, broad-scale agriculture. And I think that not, – not that I'm a farmer, but I do come from farmer background. The point is that if you're finding an Australian native plants that need far less water input, and that's what he was pointing out in this landline program that they're growing on – he called them the worst soils in the area, so incredibly sandy – in, in the point in the way that they are very dry and also very nutrient poor and don't hold much organic matter, so you're talking about food plants that can grow in really poor conditions. So as an urban kind of gardener, that um, that really piques my interest. To quote, uh, but uh, but I think what's really <laughs> difficult about that is if you're trying to if these Bad things uh, won't grow in in 
great soils is we've all spent so much time and effort getting our soils, getting our soils good. <laughs> you know, up to what we need for introduced plants. Yes. And, and that doesn't necessarily match what, you know, the, to grow some of these other things. No, but it's pretty easy to get them back to bad soils. <laughs> <laughs> you just take them up to the guy just at the end of the street. Just yeah, 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 yeah. So... Uh, I, I suppose I'm interested in things too that don't need much water, don't need much moisture. Definitely. And, yeah, uh, yeah really, really interesting. Mm. Yep, yep. We must go to another caller. We have Mary out in Collingwood. Good morning, Mary. Oh, good morning. I'm wondering if the, the mob on today has any new ideas about getting rid of uh, Tradescantia from a large backyard which used to be lawn and flower beds but um, I can't maintain it anymore I've had several young people come in and have a go at this uh, weed but um, it's just really difficult to get rid of and I I did have one fellow who um, defiantly sprayed it against Mm. my instructions and that was a disaster it's just not necessary anyway oh it's just awful and I lost roses and everything grief I'm just wondering if um, you know, I've just got to get got to get rid of it and whatever it takes, really. I, I, to me, it's always been a case of smother it out. Yes. Yeah. It, mm. it, 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 it's much easier to smother out than cooch or cuckoo. You oh, were yeah, you about can before. absolutely get rid of trans- You know, a you? decent mm. layer of mulch over the top and you'll get a couple of bits coming through the top. Mm. But and the can, edges. At, or at the yeah. edges, mm. but... Um, on the whole, you can actually knock it back by mm. smothering it out. And steel rake, that's my favourite method of removal, is just get a big steel rake and just rake it. I'm doing the hand motions again. But, uh-huh. yeah, just, just rake it back and put it into um, bags to solarise it so that you kill off the growing parts and then in plastic bags, I mean, and then it can go into the green waste. Uh-huh. Um, but you, yeah, afterwards then mulching. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. It's, not that, it's not that difficult to get rid of. As far as it's got a bad rep, you know, yeah, it's it's really it's not, not it's that not, difficult. In my experience, no. it's not as been as bad as other things. There's many, many more mm. worse weeds mm. that have you know perennial parts in the ground, yeah. like couch grass or cocoa. It gives up easier. Well, it does have perennial parts yeah. in the ground, but too. not very deep. though. Not very deep. Yeah, but, but if it's in amongst smaller plants, it is hard to get rid of. Okay, sure, yeah, yeah, sure. It is tricky. Yeah. Yeah. I guess it's you've got open, to contain it to open, areas. Open backyard, really. How thick would the mulch need to be? Oh, I'd, I'd say three or four inches. Yeah, yeah. at least, huh? at least so three. You've got inches. to cut your yeah. light. That's yeah. the whole point. You've got to, yep. Yeah. Smother. <laughs> I think chooks. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Actually, I don't know about chooks of Tradescantia with oxalis. Yes, I've never tried them out. with Tradescantia. They'll scratch it out. Yeah. Mm. I've just have this. Yeah, the, the other thing is if, if you that. um you know if you can get hold of any old carpet or anything and put that down, mm. that'll do the same the same trick. Has to be very old carpet or very old unlay that doesn't have any um. Artificial petrochemical material yes, in it because it also you just never get rid of it. It's yes. just mm. it's never just breaks like, down. never mm. breaks down. You yeah. find that under the old garden, old garden over the years. Yeah. Like, What's under here? Oh, they put down carpet. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Plastic lattice. Yes, work. yes, that's right. <laughs> All yeah, inside horrible. the roots. Oh, yeah, charming. I just get the bulk mulch from the council or something like yep. that. Yes, get exactly. That'll do the job. Yep. Oh, thank you so much. And the other point that Murray's phone call brings up is something that probably all of us have thought about over the years, is how lovely would it be if... I mean, this scheme already works in other countries. It just doesn't seem to have taken off in Melbourne particularly. Is a scheme where younger food gardeners could pair with people like Mary and Collingwood with larger gardens that they're not able to maintain anymore, younger gardeners being desperate for space, and it would just be 
fantastic if mm. that really did take off. There was a pro- there's a program called Landshare, which was working really. It does work really well in the UK. I've seen it in. Um, in um, Canada as well, in North America. Phil so Dudman it, actually tried to start it. It was Phil Dudman. I wasn't sure. I knew that yeah. it was registered here, but it yeah. just doesn't seem to have taken no, off. No, it That's hasn't taken off at all. Because yeah. that would be ideal to me because I just look at someone who can't maintain a huge amount of, mm. you know, well, might be not huge, but it might be large enough to supply uh, Mary as the um, share farmer owner with some veggies some, and, and um, then there's that beautiful interaction. Where in, Mary, in Mary's yeah. case, How it would, it would potentially work, but where issues came up with the whole idea mm. of this was that some people were prepared to, say, offer um, a corner of their garden. Right, right yeah. and then um, and and that wasn't maintaining their own garden. They were just giving off a little bit of, of mm. their land that mm. someone else could come in and use. But then there are all sorts of issues, like if they use water, the water was water the biggest thing they're using, of. Yeah, and yeah. you know that becomes tricky. But you'd have to come, you'd have to sort of come to some arrangement. I mean, you can figure out. Diggers really is the go-to place with all the information yeah. statistically about how much water a garden uses. And it's mm. also not that difficult to measure yourself if you do a bit of a hand water, mm. time that, and then measure with a bucket and then extrapolate that out. But, yeah, Diggers has some fantastic information for estimating those things. So mm. then they looked and at actually drawing up an a contract, yeah, an yeah. arrangement. Um, Surely it has and, to come. And the idea age. was that, that, that they would give the owner of the land um, a certain a amount of percentage veggies, of yeah. the yeah. yeah. But it, it, it got too bogged down in, in the shame. logistics of the yeah. whole thing. Yeah. So well, it got on Phil for trying, but what a shame. Yeah. It kind of has to be a connection between people. They take it and run without, That's right. without, the, without yeah. having the support. Yeah. They've got That's to do it right. and figure out the yeah. needs. It's, yeah. It should be a one-to-one yeah. organic yeah. thing. Which is where... It, has its most power, I think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's right. And then yeah. there's also the issue of, of the person coming in, what they want to plant, and that mightn't please the owner of the land because they're looking out on it mm. or they've lost the plants that they wanted kept in there. Or... It's really a social construct just, that's it, got to work. That's right. Yeah. That's yeah. right. Yeah. So it's another, To me, it's another form of community gardening and you think, well, it's this resource. Yep. And also there's – I know – even with just some of the elderly people in my street, that there's, you know, there's loneliness with people that live alone because their partner's died or their husband or wife's died. And, and you know, there's a lot of potential for that interaction to happen. Mm. But, yeah, the magic spark just doesn't seem to, like you're talking about, it has to be a one-on-one thing and it just, that just doesn't seem to have happened, which yeah. is a shame. Mm. No. Maybe, maybe it'll happen at another time. Or maybe it's happening mm. in places you don't know about, just neighbours did it. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. There's a lot of talk about it with people I know, and right. it just um, and I know some of the councils too have tried not so much this, but they've tried um, smaller community gardening with different people growing certain things in their back gardens. And yeah, they, look, they, I know some things are working, some things aren't. But yeah, that particular one with with older gardeners, I, I just would love to see it myself, just mm. because I have a lot of older gardener friends, I suppose. Yep, yep. Mm. Tim. Mm. Yes, yeah, sorry, just before we finished, I wanted to just touch back on the seed annual. Yes, absolutely. So, so um, I wanted to offer – the Diggers is offering a, our 3CR listeners, anyone who wants to, who's not a club member who wants to get hold of our seed annual, which is 72 pages of heirloom seeds, all available online and via mail order. If you want to get hold of our seed annual, you can email us at info at diggers.com.au with your name and address and mention 3CR and we'll send you a free copy of our seed annual for, the, for 2016. Fantastic. So, and you'll see in that the green and black and the green 
grape that we were talking about oh, before. Oh, look, it's, it'll make you drool. It's a lot of fireside cocoa sipping yeah, reading. Lots, lots little, <laughs> yes, exactly. And then action now because we really yeah. got to get into planting seeds. So. Absolutely, <laughs> yes. So that's, that's so fantastic. That's info at diggers.com.au and with your name and address and mentions 3CR, we'll give you a free copy. Brilliant. Fantastic. Very quickly, we've had a query um, on the outside line. Caller wants to know if you can buy mycorrhizal uh, fungi. Yes. For your gardens. Yes. There's a product called Myco Gold that we sell through our, our mail order. Uh, it comes as a sachet in 50 grams or 200 grams, and it uh, covers, uh, off the top of my head, I can't remember the area that covers. I think it's somewhere in the order of 50 square metres to 200 square metres. Right. And it's a, it's a powdered mycorrhizal form that will mm. inoculate the ground with mycorrhizal. So fungi. how do you use it? Do you simply you, you, spread it? Or? You put it into a watering can uh, and, and, and then and you water, water it on. on. Yep. Yeah. Pretty straightforward. The instructions are on there. It's look at Myco Gold, it's called. Is, can I ask, is that something that's been formulated in Australia or something yes, that's... Yes, it's an Australian, oh, oh, okay, Australian that's formulation because yeah. they're quite... We have different, yeah, it's, I was it's, interested it's, in And it that. actually has a mm. whole heap of different mycorrhizae in it. Of so course, it's not just yeah, one yeah, or two species. Yeah, yeah. It's actually quite broad. So someone's, that's great. Someone's making yeah. it here. And it'll work for trees. Mm. It'll, it'll actually work. You can put on veggies. It's, mm, it, mm. It, and, and you have and to be... A bit particular about how you apply mm. it, follow the instructions to make mm. it work. And then I have to say, from a tree surgeon friend who uses something similar, is add, um, I didn't know it was available for the home gardener, uh, start putting molasses, water molasses around to feed your mycorrhizae afterwards. So dilutes and molasses in mm-hmm. water and get yeah. that around the place. Okay, fantastic. Mm. You've just got time to have a quick brag, Karen. Oh, yes. <laughs> we one, have to mention it. One macadamia. My first, first macadamia. Well <laughs> <laughs> Don't eat it. No, just look at it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I have to say a big thank you to the team this morning and also to Chloe who's managed all the phones for us. We, of course, have run out of time for now, but we will be back uh, next week at 7.30. So until then... Bye for now.